Welcome to Pub Natter, hosted by Tim Ives and Justin Perry. We both moved to Rutland over 20 years ago, but our careers kept us away from home, so we don't know as much about the county as we should. So we thought, now that we're getting old and slowing down, how can we meet interesting folk and learn as much about Rutland as possible? The answer is to host a podcast, or is that a pubcast? We hope to host each podcast in a different pub in and around Rutland, so we get an excuse to visit a new pub every week or so, whilst letting interesting, mostly local people and organisations, tell their stories, and at the same time promoting the ales and the pubs. We have plenty to choose from in Rutland, so this project could take some time. We have spent many hours in pubs up and down the land discussing every topic you could possibly imagine. We sit on opposite sides of the political spectrum and are probably the only two friends in Rutland that didn't fall out over the Brexit referendum. Given this and our backgrounds, Tim, Royal Air Force, dental healthcare and postgraduate education, and Justin, construction industry and construction law specialist, we reckon we have got the skills to get our teeth into our subjects and build some stories for our listeners. Most episodes will start with 10 or 15 minutes with the landlord, discussing their backstory, the history of the pub and its offerings, and then a special guest with a special interest area of expertise. We hope you enjoy our chats and it encourages you to go out and explore our little county and all that it has to offer. Like the motto says, there is much in little. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. Hi, pub natter listeners. Tonight, we are talking to you from the Railway Inn, a 170-year-old pub in the village of Ketton in Rutland. We'll be having a natter with the landlord, Jamie Betts, about the history of the pub, his ludicrously eventful start to his landlording career, and his family connection to the village, not to forget the inspiration for the name of the pub dog. We then turn our attention to Rich Harris, the chair of the Rutland branch of Camera. That's the campaign for real ale for the uninitiated. He'll be nattering about what Camera does and giving us a bit of insight into what makes a real ale. Not giving too much of a way, but there is a lot more to Camera than beards and big jumpers. On my left is Justin Perry, our co-presenter. And on my right is Jamie Betts, the landlord of the Railway Inn. Um, in a moment, we're going to be having a chat with Jamie. Um, but first of all, um, Justin's been digging into the history of the, of the Railway Inn, and he's going to give us a little bit of an introduction. Uh, well, digging is a little bit of an exaggeration, <laughs> but 20 minutes on Google is about all it took. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so obviously we were coming to talk to Jamie about the pub and his history here, so I thought I'd do a little bit of digging and delving before we did. Um, one of the first things I learned was that nimbyism is not a new thing. <laughs> and back in 1846, when they were putting the railway between Peterborough and Syston, which eventually gave rise to this pub and its name, there was a lot of objection from a local landowner. Um, and it was actually delayed by two years. 
So even 170 years ago, the problems they've had with network with the HS2 were the same, <laughs> yeah. sort of, same sort of thing was happening even then. Uh, so the railway came through in 1848, two years late. At that time, there was one or maybe two pubs in the village. But once the railway was in place, it became a bit of a brewing centre and the number of pubs grew quite rapidly. And I think, I don't know, but I think that the railway was one of the pubs that um, sprung up in between 1850 and 1890. Um, and now, there, there were 11, I think, at peak. And wow. now the railway is the last man standing. 12 or 13, I think. 12... <laughs> I'm sure there was 12, but there could have possibly been a 13th. We did go on a tour a few years ago around the village and, and saw some of the pubs, which was fascinating. I mean, people must have used to have drank a lot more in those days, surely. They probably didn't work as hard. <laughs> <laughs> or they did, but it was something to look forward to at the end of the day. Because the population of the village has gone up, hasn't it? Mm, definitely. And the pubs have come down. Yes. Wow. And I think that beer was probably a safer thing to drink than water Yeah, in the 1840s and 50s. Mm. Water was certainly not the standard as it is no. today. No. Um, during the research, there's a, most of the stuff I found out came from the Ketton Historical Society, which I think has stopped meeting, because I can't find anything from them post-COVID. Um, no, I'm not aware of anyone in the historical society, unfortunately. Uh, they, they were very regular. They had m monthly meetings and published minutes, and they explore a different topic every month. So there's quite a lot of information there. And one of the things they've got is kind of crime and punishment section. <laughs> and there was a lot of public drunkenness <laughs> in Kent back in the 1850s and 60s. Oh, some is... things never change. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't get pilloried now if you get caught. <laughs> no. Uh, so, um, yeah, so so that was the uh, so the, what I found out about, about the pub. Um, and then I looked into Jamie and uh, his history in the pub, which is quite recent. Um, took over in nine, two, 2019, just before COVID. That's right. Um, Six months before. Yeah. Four months in, you got your first <coughs> award from camera. Which we were very pleased to, uh, to receive. Which is an extraordinary achievement after only f four months. Uh, yeah, I think some of the credit needs to go to the previous landlord. In a, in a certain extent, because he wouldn't have got pub of the year if he hadn't have got pub of the season. But obviously, it was that's my... very noble of you to say that. Um, yeah, well, I think it's only right to do so. Yeah. But so what's the what's the recipe? What's the recipe for success? What did what did he have that and that you've continued? Um, I think I I probably bettered it. I probably you know I went into it with a, an open mind. I mean, I like my ale. I love my ale. And we took on the pub at the start, but we, we knew that things were a bit stayed. We knew that the... I found a picture today, actually, of, a picture of me just behind the bar. And it was 1050 Osprey, JHB. 1050 JHB, Osprey. Every, every week. So, so what you're saying is the and I just, previous landlord was very creative... Um, I think he probably just gave people what they wanted, but wasn't necessarily wanting to think that there's a there's a there's a 
so many ale brewers out there. And my stance on it was the fact that I wanted to bring variety to everybody. There was only the three hand pulls, but the, the fourth one was there, but inoperable. My first, my first ambition was to try and get that up and running because I wanted to try and support our local brewer being Baker's Dozen. Once that was up and running and it proved that there was a lot of excitement about something new on the bar, then it kind of triggered, well, just, just keep changing things around a little bit and going further afield. And that was when I started to find my feet in the pub and just introducing different ales because it's okay having the same three ales on all the time, but there's, there's hundreds and yeah. there's so many ales out there that variety is the spice of life. Yeah. So it kind of triggered something with me and I just needed to try and continue it. Brilliant. So, so having made a great start, you then got hit by COVID again, barely five or six months into your mm. career as a landlord. Mm. Um, there are an awful lot of establishments that have been going around a lot longer who it, COVID finished them, but you've survived, and as we'll come on to later, you've thrived. Mm-hmm. Um, again, could you tell us how you how you coped with with that? Because that must have been an absolute. It, it was a difficult time. Obviously, I'd, I'd come out of the printing industry to take the pub on, which I'd, I was in for over 30 years since I left school. And then after a few months, my wife's job sort of changed and the pub was going so well that she came on board with me. So at the time when COVID just arrived and they started to announce the potential of shutdowns, this, this, was, our, this was our only income. So... When your back's against the wall like that, I think you never, you never work harder to try and make sure that you, you're going sure. to ride the storm effectively. And, and that's, that's exactly what we started to do. We, we, we bought some flagons, some four-point flagons before lockdown. The council, it was very, it was very gray, wasn't it, with the councils as to whether whether off-sales would be allowed or not, and they were quite kind of supportive. And as soon as we knew that they were allowed, it was one of our very good villagers in the pub, Mr. Dave LaVenture, I'm sure he won't mind a shout-out. He was someone that sort of suggested to me, he said, you want to get a WhatsApp group together and put a sign in the window and, and people will support you. And that's exactly what we did. And then within a couple of weeks... You know, you have to start thinking about how you're going to deliver these things, and that's when the uh, the invention of the flag and wagon yeah. arrived. <laughs> so, so I'm conjuring up a romantic yeah. image of a horse-drawn dray. I suspect it. In an pro- ideal world, it would have been that way. What, what, what was it? It was my mountain bike. <laughs> my mountain bike with um, an attachment which went onto the the rear of it on the rear rear axle, and it held. 12 four-pint flagons at a time. Um, I guess we should describe what a flagon is to somebody to hurt you. Flagon is just, an old, it's just a little brown capsule, if you like, that will hold four pints of ale. And that was, that was our saviour because we sold one flagon of ale on the first day of lockdown. And then by the time VE Day weekend came around, which I think was the... Was it about May... 
April, May. Yeah. Um, that weekend, we sold 91 flagons of real ale. Blimey, people are obviously desperate. People were supportive. <laughs> <laughs> and probably needed supporting. People were very supportive. Um, and it was, it was brilliant. We only, we only did it on a Friday. Well, we did it all weekend, but Friday was the key day. Wednesday was the day that we put the message out. And we started off obviously selling one barrel, but it soon became more and more popular. So we went to two barrels, three barrels, four barrels. And Dean's electric landlady was, at the time, the, it was the record-breaking, fastest-selling ale, <laughs> which, you know, we, people were in the village, were, they were sat by their phones <laughs> listening because I, I always had written a message about all the ales, described all the ales, we had our spreadsheet ready, and then at six o'clock, exactly, the, uh, the message would go out, and we would just be inundated. People were just sitting there waiting to, to hear what the options were. And we knew that we could only get 15 flagons, roughly, 15 flagons out of a barrel before that barrel would sell out. So I think Electric Lanley sold out in nine and a half minutes. We were there and you'd be getting a message back saying, I'll have that one, and I'll have that one, and I'll have that one. <laughs> and you had, to, you had to gauge. Luby would be sat there adding them all up on the spreadsheet. And as soon as it got to 15, you'd have to sort of send a quick WhatsApp message out saying, right, Electric Landlady is all sold out now. But you knew that about three or four minutes later, someone would send a message. Electric Landlady, please. <laughs> No, 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 it's sold out. Oh, I'll have that one instead. I can envisage you in, like, 30, 40 years' time. Selling the story. Like, talking about post-pandemic stories. (laughs) You're telling everybody about your your flagging story. People are fascinated about it. And (laughs) and they're sort of, uh, well... They are fascinated and very pleased that we did what we did during lockdown. As we were, because... We needed to make ends meet. And brilliant. It, it did rekindle ingenuity mm. to, yeah. to some extent. You know, people had to find a way, mm. and people found all sorts of different ways. So, uh, and then did you struggle with the other end of it? Because obviously you were being able to, to sell it to people, but you then needed to bring in the stock. Was that difficult to obtain? wasn't as difficult as people perhaps thought. I know there were some horror stories on the news about brewers that were tipping ale away. Um, people that wanted to try and survive carried on brewing when they could. And they were allowed to deliver it. We were allowed to serve it and deliver it under, under certain, certain circumstances. But no, we didn't have too much of a problem. We started a lot of oakum ales, a lot of grain store, Baker's Dozen, Neen Valley Brewery, um, which was good because if they if they hadn't have been able to brew and supply, then obviously yeah. there was no business. Yeah. So um, something that Justin really picked up that I thought was quite interesting is that you are the only pub in Rutland that doesn't sell food. I'm proud of it. <laughs> so tell us about that. How do you manage that? It's always going to be that way. The Railway Inn's always been a non-serving food pub because the kitchen's just there. It's 
not even big enough to swing a cut in it. So it's just one of those things where we are well supported by the community. And it is a pub where people come and in a way it is our unique selling point because there's so many pubs out there in the whole country that are food orientated that every time a customer walks through the door they're presented with a menu yeah and it's going to cost x amount of pounds whereas where the country's i think going wrong slightly is that people need this sort of establishment because they just want to be social yeah people want to come down and have a chat without having to be presented with a menu sure mental health yeah especially after the pandemic yeah but I have to tell you, it is my pet hate. There's a pub near us. I won't give any names away, but <laughs> they, it's food, food, food. Mm-hmm. And you walk in the door, and they ask you to go and take you to a seat. I know. And it's like, I don't want to go to a seat. I want to go to I've come to a pub in the house. So, yeah, you're right. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have our little moments where, you know, we have a fish and chip van that comes on a Monday night, has done for 30 years. We've got plates, we've got sauces, cutlery, and everyone knows it, so they come along. They open at half past four, they come and have a drink or two. The chip fan comes at half past five, quarter to six, and then they all come in and eat the fish and chips. Right. And then we all just clear so the plates. I think that's a date night for me and Julie. It's <laughs> 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 night for many of people. Well, I've got to say that the beer is worthy of coming. Cheers. Cheers. Thank Cheers. you very much. Yeah. Uh, um, the, there were a couple of other things. Um, one of the things I discovered is your surname is Betts. And there were Betts uh, in the village as far back as 1841. And they did seem to diminish in number um, to the point there was only one shown in 1911. Um, but I'm just wondering, do you know whether you're the timeline. from that same line? I, I can Betts? take you back to 1911. Um, my fa- well, it's my father's grandparents. My my grandmother was born in the houses just past the windmill, just outside Ketton. She was married at Ketton Church. She she moved to Stamford after that. But her her parents, Jack and Ethel, they would have been here in 1911 because my grandmother was born in 1930 in those cottages. So I can take you back to about 1911 when Jack and Ethel would have been here. I can't take you back as far as 1848. But the likelihood is... But the likelihood is that most likely... A direct line descendant. Mm-hmm. So your family has been here longer than the pub. Fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> and, and here you are, 160, here 170 years after the pub was founded. Running it. Running it. And, and, it, and, and the pub that I used to come into when I was... 18, obviously. Fantastic. That's, that's, that's quite extraordinary. Mm. So what's, what's the future of the Railway Inn and Jamie Betts? Well, we intend to stay here for as long as people will have us, and, and, it, and we're fit and well to do so. Um, obviously, like you say, four or five weeks ago, we completed the deal and, and I've taken it on in sole ownership now. Um, Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. It is one of those things where... You know, with the news, the negative news that you hear going on in the country at the moment, you do think to yourself, have we done the right thing? But you've, you've got to be positive, because we believe we've done the right thing. And if, if it stays as buoyant as it is now, then the only way is up. Well, so we 
came along tonight thinking, oh, half past six, seven o'clock, we'll just sit in the corner, there'll only be a, you know, half a dozen people in there. And of course, we, we couldn't park, and we wondered <laughs> why, what was going on, and then we came in and the place is absolutely rammed, which is why we had to go into this little snug to... To, to, to produce the podcast because you can't be heard in, in there. So you're clearly doing something right. Yeah. Um, just need to give you a shout out as well. Congratulations on winning the regional uh, camera of the year award. That was amazing. Beating 1,400-ish other establishments. Yes. Um, that's, that's yeah. A, some we never would have dreamed to have uh, got that far, but we did, and uh, we were overwhelmed when when we won it. So. Wow. I so, wouldn't expect to do it again, but it would be nice. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's an amazing success story from yes. a standing start four years ago to regional awards, local awards, coming through COVID in, in one piece, acquiring full ownership of the establishment, building a business. Mm. It, it's, a, it's a success story, and it's really lovely to see it because, as you said, all we hear is bad news so yeah. it's quite I nice know. to know that some know. people it's a shame. have got a bit of a backbone can get them and make something happen mm. um, yeah so finally, finally we've got something in common we're all David Bowie fans we are all David <laughs> Bowie fans <laughs> yes and um, some of us pronounce it Bowie which is <laughs> yeah. the correct way to do it did you say Bowie or Bowie Bowie I oh, see Bowie is how I pronounce it are you, are you a Bowie Bowie <laughs> you I, see? Don't, I don't I don't really have an opinion on it. <laughs> the, Whatever comes out of my mouth. It, Bowie, so the, dog an, the dog answered to it. So. <laughs> yeah. But yes, we are, we are David Bowie fans. And as it happened, our pub dog, um, as brilliant as he's turned out to be a pub dog, wasn't pub dog. He's nearly eight years old. And we got him just after David Bowie had passed away. So it was just a situation of when we were playing the name game that... You go around the houses like you always do, and it was on the news all the time, wasn't it, about David Bowie? And I said, oh, you want to call him Bowie next? And Luby and Dexter, my son, both looked at each other and said, I quite like that. <laughs> and we went around the houses again and again and again, but we kept coming back to Bowie, and that's, uh, that's why Bowie is what he is. Well, Fantastic. My oldest son is named after David Bowie. Is he? David, rather than Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Heroes was the first dance that we had at our wedding. So, yeah, very good. Um, lucky enough to see him twice in the eighties. Oh, I never saw him, unfortunately. When, when I think of heroes, I always think of the twenty twelve Olympics when the British team came out to heroes mm. and they scattered all that confetti everywhere. And I thought that was like phew, that was a great moment in time. That was and the perfect use. That's brilliant for, for that song. Yeah, that was great. Everyone yeah. seems to remember where they were at the twenty twelve Olympics, yeah. don't they? Yeah. We were on the East Coast. I was in Florida because <laughs> I had a massive hissy fit because I couldn't get tickets for anything. So I decided that I, was I wasn't going to stay. I'm going away. <laughs> Brilliant. So we'll draw that part of our podcast to an end. I really want to thank you for your time. And, Absolute pleasure. Um, it, was, uh, it was... That was easy, wasn't it? Should do. Should do come here again and do that. Well, on, fish and chip night. That's a great idea. Fantastic. Fish and chip night. There's live music night on the 18th of November. There you go. Get there's that plug the Christmas in. disco on the 16th of December <laughs> with DJs Russ and DJ Dom on the vinyl. Funk, soul and disco. Where? In there. Uh, this, place, yeah. this place turns into a nightclub on those kind of nights. That would be cosy. It will. <laughs> it is. Fantastic. Brilliant. So um, 
thank you very much. Thank, thank you very you. much, gentlemen. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. So, for part two, we're here with Rich Harris. Um, we're going to have a natter with him. Um, Rich um, is the chairman of CAMERA, um, which is the campaign for Real Ale, big organisation um, throughout UK. Um, Rich is going to be telling us about that in a moment. But why don't we just start by you giving us a little bit about your background and how you kind of like um, moved from retirement and getting involved into, into camera. Yeah, um, I came over to um, Rutland about five years ago, my wife and I were retired and um, didn't know anybody in the area. Um, and I happened to see that uh, Rutland Camera were holding a beer festival um, and they were looking for volunteers. Um, and having in um, my working life uh, been involved in the licence trade to the extent that we'd run a pub and had an outside bar business. Oh, really? Um, so where, where was your pub? Uh, in uh, Herefordshire. Oh, right. Um, the Walwyn Arms on the border of Herefordshire in Gloucestershire, a um, little village called Much Markle. Nice. Um, yeah, lovely part of the country. Yeah. So we were there for a few years. Um, that was just a small part of my work. But anyway, when I got to Rutland, saw that um, there was a beer festival being held... Um, within about a 10-minute walk of my house, um, I thought, well, um, I don't know anybody here. Um, it could be a good way to meet some people, and uh, um, I've always enjoyed a beer myself. So um, I rocked up at the um, festival to volunteer, and um, that was the start of the relationship with Rutland Camera. So what's, what's the goal of Camera? What, what's Camera hoping to achieve? Well, Camera was established in 1971, um, and it's been viewed, viewed as one of the most successful consumer rights campaigns, certainly in, in Europe, um, in the fact that um, it was all about um, preserving real ale, and that was the objective that was set out by a bunch of guys that met in a pub in St Albans in 1971. Um, and... Um, so, so, sorry to interrupt you. How do they do that? How do they do? They put pressure on on companies. I'm not 100 percent sure, to be honest, how they did it initially. Um, I was thinking about it today in um, anticipation of uh, this evening's podcast, and um, I really struggled to see how something like that would happen today. Um, uh, it must have taken an awful lot of dedication and hard work, lobbying of an awful lot of people. Um, but um, it, it's been a... Um, from its primary objective of preserving real ale, then it's been a tremendous success. I mean, um, despite the pandemic, we've still got an awful lot of, uh, you know, thriving independent brewers. Um, and real ale is there as part of the drinks market when back in 1971, I think when they set it up, they feared that by 1975, there wouldn't be such a thing as real ale. Wow. Um, so um, it's it's been a fantastic achievement. But I, I don't really understand how it could have worked because yeah, I wasn't I, around. Because... Um, you know, involved in it at that stage. I think in that time, all the pubs, well, most of the pubs were tied, weren't they? And the big brewers were just becoming stronger and stronger and stronger and producing the, the mass-produced... Um, that would have certainly been... Cake beer. A, a big factor. Do, do you think that the that camera has... Well, 
inadvertently provided a springboard for the proliferation of craft beers and, and, and microbreweries that we've had over the last 10, 15 years. I, I do think so, yes. Um, the fact that we, um, we it has re-established real ale as, as, a, as, a, as a, um, a significant part of the drinks business. And, uh, yeah, and brewers, you know, they're not going to... Nobody's going to set up a brewery and think I can make... Uh, uh, car scale um, if there's no market for it obviously no. so we've re-established that um, I, I guess a big in a way what you're doing is you're telling beer manufacturers what it is that people want because unless there's a voice of opinion mm. they're mm. not gonna they're not gonna be able to deliver that are they no that's right I mean it's a con totally a consumer-led organization yeah. um, and so it is our members which we've got uh, just over 150,000. Wow. Um, worldwide, that is, with probably about 145,000 of them in this country, um, spread across 200 branches throughout the UK. Um, and so, it's, so that's, that's the voice. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it is, uh, you know, things like our Good Beer Guide, um, our um, awards for beers, Champion Beer of Britain Awards, um, the awards that go out to the, the pubs, our pubs of the year awards, etc., like that, um, all boost the profile of, sure. um, of, 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 of real ale within the industry. Fantastic. Mm. Wow. So tell us, tell us how you would define a real ale. Well, um, <laughs> I'll tell you how I would define a real ale, um, and then I'll tell you what camera have done um, recently. Um, I would define a real ale, and when I first got involved with camera and my thinking on it and what I've always appreciated as a real ale before I was involved with camera was what uh, is a cask-conditioned ale. So it's, a, it's an ale that when it's produced from the brewery, there's still a live fermentation process going on. It gets delivered into the, into the pub. Um, it gets finished off in the pub, basically. Um, so so how, how it's delivered to the pub... It's still got. It's still growing. Yes, still yeast exactly. in there. Yeah, yeah. And then it gets finished off. What, yep. what, what does that? What does that mean? Uh, basically, the fermentation process continues. The tap, the cask gets tapped, um, and then within about, depending on the beer, from twelve to twenty-four, maybe thirty-six hours, it's then in prime condition for serving, um, and then that probably lasts for about. Four or five days, um, depending on the beer. Some would only be in prime condition for three days. Some of the, the, the stouts and porters, um, the darker beers might last a little bit longer. Wow. Um, but it's a live product, and that's the key to a, a real ale. Um, it's not been sure. um, pasteurised. Um, it's not served under gas pressure or anything like that. It's a, it, 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 it's a, a live product that uh, and, is being finished off. In, and you've in got to get set. rid of it in three days. Uh, that is one of the challenges for, sure, yeah. for landlords. Um, and that is why um, you, uh, um, you will occasionally, unfortunately, get a pint. You'll go in and say, well, this doesn't taste like it should because they've kept right. it on for that extra 24 hours because they want to maximise the return on the barrel. But, of course, that could be seen as a bit short-sighted because you might not go back into that pub again because the beer was off last time. Good. So um, it's a really tough one for, yeah. uh, for um, pubs in these times, I think, which is why pubs that like, you know, here we are at the railway tonight, we've just got four ales on, which um, is, a, you know, a, a, um, 
credit to Jamie that he's, um, sure. that he's able to, to keep that number on. Uh, but it's a reflection of also the turnover and the number of people he gets coming through the pub. Um, because how, without that, then... Uh, how obvious is it if a beer's past its best? I'm, I'm not a, an ale drinker uh, myself. It's, it's very obvious. Um, I no, mean, do you I have to be a bit of a connoisseur or would no, anybody? Not at all. No, no, it, you don't have to have the most discerning palate. Um, <laughs> you, you can smell it. You don't even have to taste it. If it, it starts to get that sour smell, um, and, 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 you, and you know, so, um, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You, they, it, um, it's very, you know, very obvious. So, so essentially, if um, a pub belongs to camera... Then you well, it's no, a camera advertised pub. You know that you're going to be able to go along there and get a pint, and it's going to be within those three days. Well, if it's a camera recommended pub or it's in the camera good beer guide, for yeah. example, then um, yes, that would you would hope that would be the case. You can't guarantee it, of course. Sure. Um, but um, the idea that um, camera camera is. Uh, totally independent of all licensees and all pubs. Um, we're a consumer group based on members of the public. Um, landlords can join, but they join as a member of the public. We don't show f fair or favour to any pub. Um, we treat them all even-handedly, even pubs that don't serve real ale. Um, they obviously won't get in our good beer guide and won't win our awards, but um, from a camera perspective, and going back to the initial objectives of camera were to preserve real ale. I think largely that's been done. Um, so what camera are much more focused on now is the preservation of all of our pubs um, and our breweries. Sure. Um, so um, we, uh, certainly our pubs that are in our good beer guide, we expect, we would expect those, if you went into the pub there, you would expect to get a, a quality pint of ale. Um, but it can't be guaranteed. Landlords could change, um, etc. Yeah. Camera have actually become quite a powerful lobbying organisation. Um, so they kind of almost work on two levels. There's the day-to-day the -day interaction with the pubs, mm -hmm. but there's a core that speaks to government yep. and tries to get um, taxation policy and duty policy changed to just give a little bit of extra help to mm -hmm. landlords and brewers. To, wow. to allow them to continue to exist and to continue to thrive. They don't always get what they want, but they, mm -hmm. they are a very powerful voice. Yeah, that's very much the case. Um, at, the, at the moment, um, Camera have um, sent out to all of our branches, um, the, or National Camera, um, a template letter that, you can, uh, that they recommend or request that we send through to our local MP um, with some of the information about things that are being looked for in the autumn statement from the Chancellor. So it's, it's quite, you know, if you've got 150, if 145,000 members chose to send those emails into their MPs, yeah. then it is quite a powerful voice. So it, it's not, um, so the government, I think, does recognise that the camera is quite a, a force for good, certainly within the drinks industry. Cool. And I think most publicans do too, um, and certainly breweries. Mm -hmm. So, so if I wanted to become a member, what would I need to do? Um, visit www.rutland.camera.org.uk or possibly, if Jamie's got some leaflets here in the byway, pick one up and, uh, and complete it. Um, it's very easy to join. Um, we're a very friendly branch. Um, we've now got here in Rutland 217 members. Um, at our recent beer festival, we managed to recruit um, 25 new members. Um, 
that was partly due to the fact that if you join um, at a camera beer festival, you do get uh, £20 back in vouchers to be spent at the festival. <laughs> That's so it not does, bad. Uh, so it That's does good uh, scheme, encourage you to join as soon as the membership's only about 28 quid, I think. Yeah, that's but, a no-brainer, uh, as far as um, I'm concerned. But it's um, very much a, you know, it's a, a, we're a very sociable bunch. I mean, the, the, I've, uh, one of the issues we have, if we're completely honest, is we're a fairly mature bunch within yeah. Rutland Camera. Reflects the demographic of the the county, uh, age demographic of the county to a sure. large degree, um, but uh, you will find that branch of Sheffield branch of Camera, for example, being a big university town um, or city, has um, got some, um, you know, a, a much more um, yeah. varied age Vibrant. demographic. So, uh, yeah. uh, but that's something we would really like to address at Rutland Camera, but we're struggling, I'll be honest, to, to uh, attract younger members. So, so I've got. A Question: I, I am. Um, I've seen a term that I don't know what it means, and that's live beer. Live beer. I've not seen that before. So no, how, how that, that this is going back to um, it's something a term camera introduced as part of their description um, to replace the term real ale. A oh. lot, yeah, um, because. Um, I think because of the change in nature of the brewing industry with a lot of the craft beers um, that uh, had emerged in the last 10 years or so, um, that they decided that um, rather than just term it real ale, which goes back to what I was yeah. saying earlier about purely the cask-conditioned ale, then live beer is any beer where the fermentation process is still continuing when it's, it's been actually delivered. been um, uh, put, put in its in its delivery container. Sure. So that can be a bottle or a can or a key keg or um, a cask-conditioned ale, which is where real ale, sort of the definition of real ale, was right. focused on initially. So it's 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 um, a beer where the fermentation process is still, still going, going on. on. So it's broadening in the description, isn't it? It's keeping the, the same. It's the yes. same method, yep. but it. The container yeah, can be different. That's right. So, cask conditioned ale is a subset of live beer. Right. Okay. That's the way it sort of uh, is. The camera would portray it these days. I wasn't even aware you could get live beer in tins. Were you? Uh, only because I've been to the Keswick Brewery tour, <laughs> um, and that's that was when I first came across the term live beer. Oh, and they yeah. actually have a price list for all their beers. The one, one's live, and the other one is keg, I think, and the the, the two different prices. Yep. Um, I think the keg is cheaper because it lasts for longer. Yeah, um, yeah. that would probably be and the reason. I think you explained to me when we chatted offline, um, you can have beer that's pressurised provided the CO2 is outside, that yeah, there's like a bag um, inside that, the, mm -hmm. the, the keg and the CO2 is between the... The, the keg and the bag, so the beer doesn't ever come into contact the, the with CO2 it. The CO2 doesn't come into contact. The, any CO2 that comes with a live live beer or a cask-conditioned beer should actually emanate or should actually be derived from the beer itself rather than being forced into the keg um, like you would be, uh, like a lager would be served, for example, which is served under CO2 coming into the keg, into the keg. or the, um, the beers that um, camera were battling against back in 1971. You know, I don't want to...
badmouth, but you know, a, a pint of John Smith's, for example, um, keg John Smith's. John Smith's probably makes a great cask ale these days, I'm unsure, but certainly their keg ale would be because those sorts of beers, like lagers, have been pasteurized actually before they get into that, obviously kills off any further fermentation yeah. or anything like that going on, so they're not live beers. What, what is the perceived advantage of a live beer over a, a keg beer? Is it taste? Is yeah. it? Flavor. It's, it's flavour, yeah, yeah. You get uh, and, much and that more just gets rep- lost in the process, does it? When you once you start introducing CO two and yeah. pasteurisation and the yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it loses a lot of its body and its flavour, and um, that's basically what it is. It, it, it's uh, they, they become much more bland um, without the, the full flavour, like the beer we're drinking today. There's a lot more taste in that than you would find um, if you were just drinking a keg beer. Um, uh, so that, that's, it's all about the flavour and the taste. So, so moving on from that, is, does the flavour get affected hugely by the whatever you store it in? So if you have it in a bottle or a tin or in wood or in metal, does that affect the flavour? Uh, I think it, it does to a degree. I mean, when you say... <clears throat> I mean, it's a stainless steel keg, um, a plastic keg, um, which are coming more into the market uh, these days. Um, and I think wooden casks are very much... Um, there's not many of those about, and you'd struggle to get beer served in a wooden cask. Okay, I mean, obviously, that's all. been lined anyway. It's not just wood these days. It has been for, you know, the best part of is 60, that, 70 Is that years. because of expense? The wood... Yeah, because um, obviously it's used in wine making all the time. Isn't yeah, it? but I think it it was cost really in stainless right. steel and wooden casks um, are a lot more um, you know subject to damage than those stainless steel casks, sure, yeah. which came in probably in the post the war. I should think I don't know exactly, but I imagine in stainless steel kegs probably came in. Cool, fifties, sixties, something like that. I would think. So what in his red barrel was a gimmick, not a real thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shall we discuss lager? Well, it bring me into the conversation. <laughs> I, I, my, my name's Justin Perry and I'm a lager drinker. <laughs> so, you know, I have to say, I lived in Germany for a few years and I tasted some amazing lagers in Germany. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether you would describe it as a lager. It's the same sort of colour... But the flavours are awesome, and they're and they're different, and they have wheat, really good wheat beers over yeah, there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, and they're seriously good, good beers. Mm, mm. Some of the German pilsners are, yeah. are, are very good, not not the really heavy ones. They're too too much for me. But some of the the lighter pilsners mm. are, are very. They're, there's a, a much more taste to them. I even as a lager drinker, I stay away from some of the sort of mass produced. Yeah. Um, you know, 10.99 for 18 things. Try to have something with a bit of flavour. But um, uh, the reason I gave up drinking bitter, because when I first started drinking, I drank bitter, <coughs> I found that I could drink Courage Best, which was what was in my local, and I'd be fine. And I went to another pub and drank Courage Best, and I'd be ill. And you could not tell from one place to the next why the same beer would be fine in one place. And... Sometimes it smelt a bit, kind of a fruity, mm. sweet smell as you yeah. were drinking it, and then that was normally a sign that it wasn't going to be a good night. Mm. So, um, <laughs> and uh, whereas lager is the same wherever you go, it's the same, and right. uh, and so that's why I switched because it was just more um, predictable. 
Well, that's the thing with the, the lagers that we predominantly get in this country. You can get live-conditioned lagers. Um, I think Peroni actually make one, actually. Peroni Cruda, I think it might be called. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there's, there's probably others out there. I'm not an expert in this field at all. But um, that the lagers that you would normally get served in, in pubs in, in this country are all um, uh, pasteurised before they hit the... You know, before they uh, leave the brewery, and they're served, uh, you know, under um, CO2 being um, injected into the cask to force the lager out. And the shelf life on a cask of lager is m a month compared to the shelf life, probably even more, possibly. Yeah, that's compared to the shelf life on a, a real ale. Like I said, once it's tapped, you've probably got five or six days on it. So, um, so from a publican's point of view, it's a lot easier and a lot less hassle, um, you know, to, to, to sell lager. Um, sure. And from a punter's point of view, if you've had a bad experience with real ale like you, you had Justin, then, yeah, why not drink lager then? At, uh, I had many bad yeah. experiences, mm. but it didn't stop mm. me trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing how quickly you forget. Again, then, Justin. Welcome I have back. to say, Welcome I have back. started to creep um, into some IPAs now okay. and again. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm starting to come back into the fold, but it's a slow process. <laughs> so, Rich, what's the best beer you've ever drunk? Ever? You, well, your favourite. I suppose that's the same question, really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. My favourite beer at the moment... Um, and I said this before they won Champion Beer of Britain for the um, premium IPA category, as, is um, Electric Landlady from just up the road here. Um, I, I always seek that out. If, you know, if there's a, a pub selling that, then I will go there. And uh, I think a, a well-served pint of that is, uh, is top-notch. That's my, well, my favourite. Just up the road here in Ketton, Baker's oh, right. Dozen. Yeah, I mean, oh. it won... Um, Champion Beer of Britain this year in the premium pale ale category, which is a fantastic achievement for a little two-person operation up the road. Wow. Um, absolutely wonderful beer. Um, but uh, I think, um, you know, your palate changes um, sure. over the years. Um, I remember um, when I used to live and work down in London, um, I lived in Chiswick, and um, I thought Fuller's uh, London Pride was an excellent pint, and yeah. uh, would always be drinking that. Um, I also used to like um, what was 6X. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, now Electric Landlady's my, uh, my favourite pint. I, I used to live in um, Yorkshire for a bit, and um, we used to, there was a beer up there called Rigvelter, have you heard of it? It's, it's strong. And it's got on the, on the pump, it's got a picture of a sheep that's upside down, which kind of says it all, really. Yeah. But, yeah. but that was a really good pint. Mm. And that was, that's memorable. I've not seen it about who can't hear. Um, Jamie is here, and he says it might be getting some. Now, I can <laughs> honestly say that if you do, <laughs> I'll be down there for a pint. Looks like I'm going to be designated driver again, doesn't it? <laughs> oh dear. So, before one, one last question before we uh, call it a day in evening, even um, Perry and cider. Now, I, I love cider, yep. um, especially in the summer. 
think it, I think it's a fantastic drink. Yeah, it is. So it is. our camera involved? Oh, very much so. Inside um, us. Since 1985, camera have had um, a policy with regards to uh, supporting the production and uh, um, sales of um, real ale and uh, sorry, real cider. And real Perry. cider. And for it to be classed as real cider and Perry, it must be made from 100% pressed apple or pear juice, no concentrate. Um, so that would um, um, rule out things like um, Strongbow or um, uh, uh, um, some of the Thatcher's ciders are probably right. we would consider, or camera would consider real ciders. Um, but uh, it has to be made from freshly pressed apple and um, pear juice. As a consumer, when you pitch up in a pub, how, how do you know? If it's if it's a cider equivalent of a real ale, you would probably have to ask because um, unless it's a very small cider producer, probably who really prides himself on the fact that they are making it from 100% juice and not concentrate, then the bigger cider producers won't okay. be telling you. Um, so, so that's, that's uh, a really handy hint for our listeners to ask: is is the cider made from 100% pressed apples? Freshly pressed apples. Pears, 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 yeah, perry. Perry, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, no, very much, um, you know, part of, um, you know, cameras' um, overall philosophy is uh, the preservation of real cider and uh, real cider and perry. Do camera um, provide lists of um, brands of cider that, they would consider to be real cider? They do. I think you can find it on their website, I think, with regards to the definition, under the definitions of real cider. I believe you can find it on there. Because I, I suspect in some pubs, if you ask the landlord what the cider's made from, they'd shrug their shoulders um, and not know they'd think you were mad. Mm. Um, yeah. So if you had, I think maybe if you try to find some ciders that you know are correct and then try to find pubs that are selling them... If you're keen to try them, that's probably the, the right yeah, way to go. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things that we as Rutland Camera recognise that we haven't been particularly focused on ciders and perries. Um, and we do have a, a page on our website with uh, very limited information on it, but what we plan to do is have that updated with the list of pubs around the county that, um, that are serving real cider and perries. Just so, so that that's the aware Rutland that. camera website. Yes. So how, how, what's the address for that? Rutland, uh, www.rutland.camera.org.uk Thank you. So that's, uh, do you know, what, a, what an educated evening that's been. I have learnt loads. And I might be persuaded to start trying to drink some of these uh, <laughs> yeah. real ales now. Tear myself away from the delights of Peroni and other lagers are available. Yeah. So, Rich, thank you very much for your time. Thank really, you. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, I've um, enjoyed chatting. Thanks, guys. No worries. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. I just wanted to let you know about our next three episodes, which will be a Christmas special, which focus on our armed forces veterans and the organisations and volunteers that support them. Having served in the Royal Air Force for 22 years, this is something close to my heart and one that requires more than one episode. 
Over the Christmas period, we're going to tell the story of the Armed Forces Breakfast Clubs, which started off a few years ago with a few military veterans meeting up on Saturdays in a local garage for a bacon sandwich and a chat. It has now become the biggest military veterans community in UK and is now starting to grow globally. In the first episode, we natter with Derek Hardman, the veteran who is responsible for creating the concept and managing the organisation. Episodes two and three were recorded in the Grain Store pub during the December Rutland Armed Forces Breakfast Club. We natter with some of the veterans and people who are supporting them. Do not miss our natter with John Bomber Beckett, a 95-year-old veteran. If you have an interest in the armed forces, you are a military veteran or know or have known a military veteran, you will love listening to these discussions. There is also also lots of useful information relating to helping ex-servicemen who may be having mental or physical health-related issues. So, that's a wrap. And thank you for listening to our latest pub natter. If you visit timothyives.com forward slash pub natter, you will find photos, links, and more information about each episode. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please subscribe to ensure you don't miss a pub or one of our amazing guests. The Pub Natter theme tune is by Tom Arnold. That was a Pub Natter broadcast. (laughs) 